Our scripture tonight is Luke chapter 1. I'll begin reading at verse 30 and continue to verse 32. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Amen. Father in heaven, we now pray you bless the teaching of your word as we worship with great thanks this gift of your son to be our savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The birth of every baby is always significant and each set of parents has their precious stories and priceless remembrances of the new little person who's come into the world. We have had a large number of them uh, come into the world in our church, and every story is very precious to us all. But in the passage we're looking at tonight and we're hearing sung about, Luke tells us about a birth that is significant for everyone who has ever lived, especially significant for everyone who realizes that they are sinners and they need redemption. The birth he writes of is the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Savior sent from God came into the world. Now, the story itself is very simple, though it never ceases to amaze every time you read it or hear it, that during the time that Joseph and Mary were betrothed, it became apparent that she was pregnant, and among the Jews, an engagement was as legally binding as marriage. So Joseph, being a righteous man, he he realized he could not possibly carry out the marriage in light of such a breach of God's law. But but he was a compassionate man, and he sought merely to put his fiancée away quietly rather than subject her to public disgrace. Now, neither Luke's nor Matthew's account indicates that Mary ever had a chance to explain her own remarkable tale to Joseph. And if she had, he may not have believed it. That is, until the angel entered into the story. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary. He also appears in Matthew's gospel. We're told he appears to Joseph in a dream. And he gives marvelous news of what has occurred. In verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. Now, as Mary is introduced into the passage, her chief feature is her lowliness, that God would choose her for the mission of being the human mother to the Son of God may seem unlikely, but it certainly is revealing. What Mary revealed was the very grace for which her son would be born. As Mary enters history in what is called the Annunciation, she comes not as one who brings grace, as sometimes is wrongly said, but she is a recipient of God's grace. She is chosen by God's grace, apart from any merit of her own. Now, the lowly condition of Jesus' mother is depicted in the opening verses of Luke's account. Six months had passed since unknown to Mary. Uh, The same angel had appeared to the husband of her older cousin Elizabeth. She had an older cousin. Her name was Elizabeth. She had been barren. And the angel came to Zechariah and announced the birth. In this case, it would be the birth of John the Baptist. And now Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Verse 26. This is now the Annunciation to Mary. If God had sought a woman of earthly prestige and prominence, Nazareth is the last place on earth he would have ever found her. Nazareth was populated by poor, uneducated peasants, a place we are told in John 1, uh, 46, of which people said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is the only reference to Nazareth in the entire Bible other than the fact that Joseph and Mary were from there. It was a place of no account. And yet it was here, deliberately, that God chose a mother to be the human mother of his eternal son. This would be the place where the Savior would grow up. William Hendrickson writes, The mother-to-be, to whom the promise of the incarnation of the world's Savior must be delivered, is living in, why, surely it would be Rome. No, well then, Jerusalem. No, in Nazareth, a little Galilean town, by some lightly esteemed, never even mentioned once in the Old Testament. Well, surely then the world would reason there must be some hidden princess of a great empire nestled away in the northern Judean hills. And yet Luke tells us instead that she was a teenage virgin. Almost certainly Mary would have been between the ages of 12 and 14. A teenage virgin betrothed to a poor carpenter. She was, in the eyes of Kent Hughes, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Philip Ryken notes, Yet Mary was given the greatest honor that any woman has ever been given. She was chosen to be the mother of Jesus, and her lowly estate was part of God's message. Well, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth and to Mary for a reason, His plan of salvation involves grace from God for the lowly and the unworthy. And it was this this grace by which she was chosen that the angel announced in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now what the Bible teaches in these verses is the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a doctrine that has been much assaulted in the last 150 years or so. And yet it is vital to all Christian teaching. What Luke's gospel sets forth is that Jesus was conceived miraculously in the womb of his mother Mary while she was still a virgin, before she had had intercourse with her husband. And the seed then implanted within her, which produced the baby boy, was not of man, but rather of God. And the Bible sets this forth, the virgin birth, as a simple fact. There's no explanation. There's no elaboration. Why? Because it is simply put a miracle. It is an intervention by God into the normal processes by his own power. Jesus was born of both the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary. He, therefore, is both truly human and truly divine. Now, if you're looking for the implications of this miraculous conception, what does this all mean? We need look no further than the name the angel commanded Mary to give to her son in verse 31. And behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son. And here's the vital statement. And you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is a Greek form of the Hebrew Yehoshua, which means Yahweh is salvation, or in its more popular shortened form, Yeshua 
which means the Lord saves. Now, in the ancient Jewish world, names were not given the way they increasingly are given today because we like the way they sound, uh, because it just came to us on a lark. No, 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 they they all have significance. The name tells us the meaning of the birth and of the person. And so Luke tells us that this virgin birth took place to fulfill God's promises of salvation. The Lord saves is the meaning of the name. Uh, Joseph received, I mentioned earlier, uh, the angel came to him in a dream and Joseph was also told the name of the child. That's convenient because you wouldn't want the holy couple arguing over the name. They they both got the message. But a a slightly fuller version was given to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, the Lord saves, for he will deliver his people from their sins. That is why Jesus was born. The angel was quoting Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, a great statement about Israel's hope of salvation. It reads like this, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast, steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. That is the citation that produces Jesus' name. Jesus is born to be that Savior who was the ancient hope of the people of God. He came to fulfill that promise. Here, God sends the promised deliverer who will save his people, not from the Romans, not from the ancient Philistines or other enemies. He will save them from their sins. And God sends Jesus through a womb that is not merely barren, but is actually virgin. All through the Old Testament, when there's a special uh, event that shows God's intervention, God's grace, how many times is that child going to be born to a woman who was barren? We think of Samuel, the great judge. He was born from the barren womb of his mother Hannah. We think of Samson. He was born of a barren womb. There's so many, uh, Jacob and, and Isaac. And the message of the barren womb was that God saves where human effort has failed. It's a picture that salvation is a gift of God. Salvation by grace, not of works. It's where human uh, human effort has been futile. But then we get to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. It's the actual Savior, and God notches it up a whole other level. He's not going to be born through the barren womb, but through the virgin womb. There's something unique, there's something singular that takes place. The once-for-all event, the virgin birth of the incarnate Son of God. He will come and save his people from their sins. It is God's grace alone. It is not the works of man. Now the Bible tells us why that must be. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins and Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And so here's the ancient question and it was on the minds of the people of Israel. Whose blood would be shed to procure the forgiveness of our sins? You see from the Old Testament ceremonial law that uh, the, whole, the whole way of salvation centered on a sacrifice that would propitiate God's just wrath. A, a, a propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies divine justice. The wages of sin is death. There must be a death. A sacrifice, a substitute would be offered. But who would it be? The sacrifice 
we read, must be perfect and spotless and pure without blemish or defect. God is holy. He cannot accept any other than an entirely pure sacrifice as a fit substitute so that sinners would be forgiven. So whose blood would it be? Well, Moses on one occasion thought to offer himself. That was a big thing for him to do. The people of Israel during the Exodus had been very sinful, and Moses loved them. And he said, Lord, it's it's an awful lot for me to do, but I'll make myself a sacrifice for them. And what did God say about so great a man as Moses? Who's greater than Moses? And God said, no, Moses, you yourself are a sinner. You cannot be the sacrifice for other people. Moses, Moses needed a substitute. He needed someone else to die for his sins that he would be forgiven. Well, maybe King David. There's a great figure in the Old Testament. He's called the man after God's own heart. But David was very much a sinner. The Bible makes no bones about that. He said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 7. And we will find that this same problem exists for every single Old Testament figure, any single member of the human race born naturally of Adam. And so here is the situation until Jesus came into the world. No man, no woman can stand alone before God. We cannot stand. Why? Because we're guilty of sin. He's a holy God. We must have the blood of a substitute to atone for our sins. And yet no one born of husband and wife can serve as that substitute. The Apostle Paul tells why, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all are sinners, and we stand in a line of direct descent from a race of sinners. And so when it comes to making a sacrifice for sins, human hands and human contributions can only defile. I think of Isaiah 64. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. He's not even talking about our unrighteous needs. But the best that we ever do is defiled and sinful before God. And so God sent his own son by the virgin womb of Mary, interrupting the sinful progression of the human race by the virgin birth so that there would be a man who would be suitable, a spotless lamb who could make a sacrifice for others, and that man would also be God, the one whose blood would be sufficient for the salvation of everyone who believes. It was very significant when David admitted his own unsuitableness. Surely I was sinful at birth. He's talking about the fact that from the moment of his conception, the fall had affected him. He he was in part of that sinful human race. But those things could not be said of Jesus Christ. He was not sinful at his conception. He was not sinful in his nature because of the extraordinary measure of the virgin birth. And then he was given the name Jesus so that when John the Baptist, 30 years later, would spy at Jesus walking alongside the Jordan River, that John would be able to point to him as the gospel does, pointing you to Jesus. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, that little baby, was born to live in perfect righteousness so as to fulfill the law of God on our behalf. Only he could do it. And then he offered himself as an atoning sacrifice for those who trust in him, a sacrifice pleasing to the Father, resulting in the forgiveness of our sins. It is for this reason that he was given the name Jesus, 
that he would deliver us from our sin. Well, the angel's announcement demands a question for you. And the question is this, are you trusting in something else beside the virgin-born Savior to secure God's favor? Are you hoping, this is what people hope, are you hoping that God will grade on a curve? And so when someone says to you, how do you stand before your God? You go, well, I'm better than other people. I may be a C student, but a C is a passing grade. What's the problem? God does not grade on a curve. The Bible tells that very clearly. He's a holy God. He judges by his own holy standard. I, I quoted earlier, that I mentioned that the name, he shall be Jesus, he shall deliver us from our sin, is a quotation from Psalm 133. But that same psalm says this, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one could stand if God should mark iniquities. And the Bible says that God does mark iniquities. He keeps a record of sin. The scripture tells us that all will come before God, the great and the small, and his books will be opened to judge us according to our deeds. Isaiah 5 verse 16 says, The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. No, there will be no curve. And you will not receive special treatment. You will not get a special uh, dispensation. God's judgment on sin glorifies his holiness, his perfect justice. It vindicates his rule. No, unless your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ, unless his, your sins are credited to his account and his blood was shed on your behalf, you will perish in the judgment of God. Well, you may be thinking that these are not the normal comments that one expects to hear in a musical service during the Christmas season. But they're the actual thoughts that were on this angel's mind when he told Mary and then Joseph that they were to name this child Jesus. He, he knew that the day would come when God would stretch out his holy arm in judgment. But in the birth of the baby Jesus, God stretched out his arm to save, to provide a savior, the virgin-born son of God, the son of Mary, who one day his hand would be nailed to a cross for you. And there, that child named Jesus would die in the place of all those who believe, reconciling sinners to the holy God. And that is why his name is Jesus, for he came to save you from your sins if you will believe in him. Let me conclude by saying, given the close connection between Christmas and Good Friday, between the incarnation and the atonement that was its purpose, Maybe we should revise the list of Christmas hymns that we sing during this season. Philip Bliss wrote a hymn about Good Friday that happens to sum up the meaning of Christmas. It goes like this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. They named him Jesus because he came to save us 
from our sins. Father, we thank you for the blessings that you give through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, there is atonement for sin because of your grace and your love for us. And so we, we pray your blessing on us as we hear the gospel message, and now we pray you to bless the offering that we, that we partake of. And Father, we thank you for the monies that are given, that they would cause the gospel to be spread throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.